Welcome back, everybody. So we are, I think, in episode 14, if yep. I remember correctly. Um, and this is The Corresponding Author. My name is Stephanie Hicks, and I am here with my co-host, John Michelli. How's it going, everyone? So I think we're going to talk about um, what everyone's talking about, some COVID-19 stuff, but um, hopefully not harp too much on how that's affecting life, maybe, but I don't really know. Well, it's affecting John. everything. How are you doing these days? How are you handling, coping, being at home? Do you feel uh, like, are you getting out for runs? Are you, do you have a good setup at home or um, has your family been affected or? So, um, let's see. I have been getting out for runs. I've had to change my routes significantly because in Baltimore, there's a, there's a um, promenade that goes along, all along the water. And it's, it's great to run. It's beautiful, but there are a decent number of choke points at like parks and stuff like that, where you just, you can't distance from people. And, um, it's been quite interesting because there, um, some apps like next door or some other neighborhood watch or neighborhood discussion boards have, have been, been pretty much on fire, uh, due to those. So I've, yeah. I've changed up my routes a bit. Uh, I've gone near the, uh, stadiums in Baltimore, the, the Raven stadium. So, the National Guard has some of their uh, Humvees and stuff down there, which was pretty cool. It's pretty desolate out there. So uh, I'm in an office right now, but my girlfriend and I switch off. She's a therapist, so she needs kind of a space that's more HIPAA compliant and more just isolated. So normally she's up here and we switch off. Um, I, I'm up here twice a week. So what about yourself? What are you doing? Well, first, I just want to state that I um... – my deepest sympathies and condolences goes out to everyone out there who has family or friends um, or loved ones or anyone affected by COVID-19. It's, it's been a, an emotional roller coaster. It's been a mental roller coaster. It's been a physical roller coaster trying to kind of process this in real time. And so um, as I, as I see what's happening out there, I can't help but feel just how fortunate I am or how I feel. Um, I've, I'm able to work from home. I still have a job. And um, thankfully, none of my direct family members have been affected by COVID-19. I have many, many colleagues and friends who have been affected. And it's just oh, heartbreaking to see it go through that. So I just want to, for all the listeners out there, um, hang in there and as the queen said, we will get through this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I, I echo that and no one's really been affected so far. And some people in my family are immunocompromised. So it's been very worrisome. A lot of calls, a lot of zoom meetings. Um, I don't know how many, I feel like I'm on zoom all day now. Yeah. So that's the one thing we could talk about was, um, I, I am in a similar boat. So I've, had a couple strategies that I've found useful to deal with this. So as John said, now that we are, we're both able to work remote, um, we are in Zoom meetings all day long. So that means we're physically in a chair and all day long and not getting up and walking around. And it's exhausting. I would argue maybe potentially even more exhausting than being someplace else where you are able to interact with somebody. Like I kind of feed off of people's enthusiasm and energy in meetings and you don't get that <laughs> so much in zoom. I mean, some people are really yeah. good at kind of emitting that energy, but most of the time, I mean, half the time I'm in a, a meeting, like the, the, the 
video for somebody is off like entirely. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what, what do you, I, I'm a very pro video on if, if it's like a small meeting of like under eight to 10 people, I feel like there should be some sort of discussions like video on. Sure. Like, I'm, I'm also of that boat, but like today, for example, we had a faculty meeting and I turned it off because I was scarfing down lunch. It was my one 30 minute slot of the day just to sit there and eat lunch. And so I chose to turn it off as opposed to have everybody watch me. I, I was the same <laughs> way. I was actually in the, the first 10 minutes I was making a sandwich and the next 10 minutes I was eating the sandwich. So yeah, I think, I think lunchtime, I think everybody should be given like a, a pass to, to turn their camera on and off. Uh, whenever. Um, but then I also have a friend, for example, um, who hurt her back. And so she was laying in bed for several days. And so I was Zooming with her in various meetings. And she was like, no, I'm not turning on my camera. <laughs> so I'm laying down in bed. <laughs> it was like totally understandable. <laughs> so I think yeah. there are definitely exceptions to the rule. And I mean, I guess you could say I don't like what's in the background. But then Zoom meetings has all these ability to like provide these fun backgrounds. So um, I'm I have, a pro video, yeah. pro video person, but yeah. I understand why some people might not want to. So, and, and our department at Johns Hopkins has been on Slack actually due to your and my efforts a uh, couple, right? almost a year ago, I guess now. It has to have been more than that. Has, I feel like yeah. I arrived and I was like, why is Slack not a thing here? <laughs> so I think we've been really lucky to have kind of a space that is more up to date, like messaging, things like that. I know people have been using Microsoft Teams in certain aspects, right. but I can just, and we've talked about this, our, our chair is fantastic. She gives a, a digest daily kind of update. So she does, we're not inundated with emails any more so than we normally are. But I, I can only imagine otherwise, if email was the main and only area of discussion, I feel like it would just I'm already feeling swamped with email. I don't know about you. Yeah, I'm, I'm working limited hours. And so it's, it's, I can tread water with emails right now. And that's about it. <laughs> yeah. In terms of research, I'm working very little compared to what I was doing before. That's partly due to the fact that I have two young kids. And so I'm now a caretaker to them full time. Um, we're not really able to go anywhere or do anything. And so it's madness around here. And they're, I, they're not at the age where you're, you're teaching like homeschooling, no. right? Okay. No, but they need stimulation. Like they can't just sit there and watch TV. Like they can't, they just physically cannot. They're too young. And I mean, they would sit there and watch something for maybe like five or 10 minutes and then zoom off and do something else. And you have to chase after them. So it's like, it's, um, it's a lot. My husband's also working full time from home. And so, um, yeah. So I wanted to mention a strategy that I have found useful for dealing with zoom meetings is I basically, go to every one of my, the people that I'm meeting with on Zoom and I say, can we do this in half an hour instead of an hour? And I've been able to cut down a lot of meeting time that way. So I'm able to, so if I had something that was like blocked off for four or five hours, I can get it down to two or three hours. And then I try to stack them. So because my husband and I are like trading out parenting right now, I can work for maybe two or three hours of a block and then we have to trade and it's essentially around his zoom calls and my zoom calls, which is comical, but that's kind of the way it is. And so cutting down zoom times to like the most efficient, um, try to be as most efficient as possible has been really, really helpful for me. It's almost to the point where he needs to be on your doodle 
doodle polls as well with his, his, Oh, we uh, have a whole calendar. Did I mention yeah. this? We no, have a no, whole, no. I created a whole Google calendar and I now have access to where his work meetings are. He has access to where my work meetings are. And then we created like a third calendar. It's in a Google calendar. We created a third calendar for kids. And so now we have like specific blocks of time in which he and I are assigned. You're on at like 1210. You're on at like 145. You're on at whatever it is. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just the way it is. So, I mean, that's, I feel like it's the only way it will work out. Um, okay, so half-hour meeting. So, I actually bought the the Pro Zoom. So, going too. for an hour. But I actually, thinking back, it's like, well, I only have 40 minutes on this meeting. So, it's going to conk out. I actually kind of think if I if, if I had done that, it, it would it, I couldn't do hour meetings on these. But that's I would agree. Half-hour meetings. Half-hour meetings is a good um, good strategy. So, I use also something on – so, I use Gmail. Um, and I use something called the, generally it's called the Pomodoro technique, right? So. Oh, right. Okay. Can you explain what that is? Yep. So it's uh, a fixed amount of time where uh, you're supposed to be working and then a break time. So usually it's set up to be 25 minutes of work, five minutes off. And, you know, that can mean a whole lot of things, but there's an app I use on Google Chrome called Strict Workflow. So when I click that, I have a set of websites, including email that essentially get locked out. I mean, granted, I have my phone, I have an iPad, I have, you know, a different browser, but for the most part, the main, you know, muscle memory of switching back to a tab of email actually gets shut down. So it kind of disconnects that. So for 25 minutes that other sites like Reddit and other places that I would frequent. So like Twitter shut down, Facebook, all these other ones by default. So um, you can't really navigate to them, at least on Google Chrome. And then in five minutes, five minutes after that, then you, uh, after you've done 25 minutes of work, five minutes, you can do it for a break and then you work back and forth because I, you, when I was in the office recently is a couple months ago, I feel like I was good at just like keeping email like to the side and not looking at it as much. But now I feel like I'm going back to it like every few minutes or so. And I need to cut that off. Good point. Good point. Um, I haven't had to resort to that yet, but that's probably because I don't have much time to actually get much work done. So when I log into work, it's like, let me put out the fires, emails, <laughs> let me move things where they need to be moved to, uh, put people's <laughs> put things in people's buckets or radars, and then start times up. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So there's a lot of it's interesting because there's a lot of COVID related research going on. And then there's oh, okay. been this bloom of funding opportunities, but I feel like a lot of people I've spoken to, at least in academia, it's, they can't get done their standard work and they didn't have effort to put in. So get it really accessing that was, or doing funding on doing any research on COVID and looking for funding was kind of not fitting into their world. Yeah, I think there are some people who have this like deep desire and interest and ability and expertise to be able to make significant contributions. And I think we should do everything we can to support those people who can. But um, something that I've heard a lot lately on Twitter and through various forms of communications with friends and colleagues are that some people say no I don't want to work on COVID for example I am not an expert in this and I feel like my expertise could make a bigger contribution if I continue working in the current field that I'm working on and it's almost like a sense of guilt because there is 
this intense intensity to want to help this pan in this pandemic situation as much as possible. And so whenever this like flood of money kind of opens up and all of these opportunities open up, it's like, do you choose to stop doing what you're doing in your current academic work and like switch gears entirely and then become an expert in epidemiology and modeling or clinical trials or whatever it is? Um, or do you like can kind of continue on your path? And some people I feel like are trained to do that and have the expertise to do that or have the bandwidth to do that. And some people don't. And I feel like there should be room for both kinds of thinking. And I, um, I get frustrated when I, I see so many people want to like shift towards it, but I feel like, is that really a good idea to like everybody drop what you're doing? And like everybody who's working on cancer research, should they like drop what they're doing and all switch to COVID-19? I don't know if that's a good idea. I think that's a good question. I think especially talking about data science, academic versus industry, I would say academia in many respects. Uh, so faculty, I would say, are not nimble enough to switch to these projects. I would say the funding mechanisms and being able to shift effort dynamically at a weak amount of time doesn't really work very well. I mean, it has to go through a budget, like you have to get budget numbers in, your administrative staff has to do it. I will say there is an aspect, so graduate students are a bit more nimble. They That's have true. the ability to move. But I would, I would say the same thing could be said maybe in industry, except if it comes down from the top saying we're doing this, then that right. project gets shifted. It, it happens, right? So it, it right. has the, it, it's nimble, but it's not like if you had a burning desire to do it and it wasn't cost effective or it wasn't in a product or it wasn't in some sort of funding line, I could see you not being allowed to do that. That, that being said, right, in academia, the president or the provost says this is happening. It trickles down to chairs and it trickles down to faculty. And sometimes that gets put on you. But I would say at least the mechanisms for funding and shifting around money don't move as fast as like a day to day week, maybe week to week is still too fast, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on just being able to even say, okay, I have this amount of effort to put on this. Well, like me personally, I definitely did not have effort to spare. And so I would have to drop something. I would have to make a shift in my current effort allocation. I'd just to say I'm putting a pause on this or I'm saying no to this or I, something would have to change such that I could, um, accept essentially a different type of project into my kind of research world. And I agree with you that the pace of academia is much slower than industry in the sense that um, even a week to week, kind of changing week to week or budgeting week to week is not really realistic. But at the moment, like things are in such a different state that it seems like at least academia is trying its best to be flexible in terms of allowing researchers in a more to be more fluid in kind of the choosing of the project. So I think that's good. Um, I don't think long term or like realistically that's how academia kind of functions in general, but I do feel like this is such an extreme situation that the powers that be are letting this happen, which is really, really great. Um, but I just, what I don't want to see happen is have everybody see a new pile of money or see like the potential to switch projects entirely and think that's what I have to do or have somebody tell them that that's what they have to do if they don't want to do it. Yeah. Um, I think it should be perfectly fine for you to continue working on the important problems that you were already working on if you're not an expert in that area. Yeah. Like nobody, not everybody needs to switch into COVID-19 research. So I was 
I, I think volunteered a little bit for a project on COVID-19. But yeah, I, okay. yeah. I should just mention, I think that's amazing. And I think you, you have the expertise and the data science skills to make like true contributions. I do too. At the moment, I just don't have any time. And I, yeah. um, but I just, there's so many people I see out there who I'm like, is that really a good idea? <laughs> I mean, in some respects, I don't know if my uh, volunteering was really a choice. Uh, I think it was a voluntold situation, which is okay. Um, but I found very quickly, so I've worked with, uh, there's a system in Hopkins called PMAP, the Precision Medicine Analytics Platform. And I'd worked with it briefly before, but I would say like it was very eye-opening to see something where you, you could get people to put these data together, but you know, I had to work, I have to work in the secure environment, which is essentially a virtual machine. We had to get students loaded up on that and then even connected to the servers, all the drivers, all that kind of stuff. It took like a few days. And so I think it's great because then we can go back to the hospital IT team, the, the administration that says, you know, why aren't more people using this? And we have some very clear, defi clearly defined answers to say, like, this is a bur burden, this is an obstacle. If this wasn't being pushed right now, I would have stopped here, I would have stopped here, because this was more of an, uh, an, a burden to get over that I wasn't really wanting to deal with if it wasn't something I needed to do right now. So I think that's great. Um, but I think it's also doing, you know, just like this whole pandemic is exposing a lot of gaps in our delivery of care. I think it's showing some gaps in the way data comes in. Uh, I will say it's been very interesting. We had very quick expedited IRB approvals and things like that. So there are things that are moving quickly. I will just say, though, it wasn't like, oh, I want to, I signed up. And then you get a pile of like well curated data in your lap. It was very much not like like that. Well, that's true for every data science problem that's out true. there. <laughs> yes, yes. But it's not that um, I signed up and then someone's like, can you get me something in two hours? That is not usually the case. Where here that's I was true. like, no, because I cannot do that right now because XYZ problems. But it's, it's very interesting to see a team of five or six people. It's like, all right, we're, you're going to knock down that hurdle. And then it's like, you're going to knock down that hurdle and you're going to knock down that hurdle. Um, and it's going to be done in like an hour. And I was like, okay. Like, so it's, it's very interesting to see a, a very different style project than kind of a much longer time span research problem. That makes sense. Do you want to talk a little bit about the research project in kind of general terms? Or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have some patients at Johns Hopkins who have tested positive, who hacked. So some of them were tested positive, which may or may not mean they had it, um, it's a lot, you know, depending on how sensitive the test is. And we're trying to just do some clustering in some respects to try to do some triage to see if we can identify people who would, you know, recur, need to come back in, look at like some just severity scores and things like that to see those that we discharged that came back in, could we have identified them earlier? So can you back up a little bit? Mm -hmm. What are the data that you collected? Is this genomic data? Is this nope, EHR this is data? All is EHR this? data. Okay. EHR labs, so like cytokine levels, all different types of blood pressure, temperature, like pretty much the entire chart for that person. Okay. And do you have multiple data points for each individual or is it one time point for each individual or? A lot of different time points. So for example, we'd have when they got their test, when they came back positive, when they were intubated, when they went on oxygen and all the pulse ox and oxygenation saturation measures throughout that blood pressure, temperature, uh, temporally throughout that. Um, when they were discharged, if they were discharged or not, when they died, if they um, died, 
and just, a, you know, all the other uh, information. We do have maybe some imaging. A lot of them are getting chest radiographs. Uh, genomic data really isn't, uh, I don't think, standard right now for standard of care. Sure. No, I'm just yeah. trying to get it, my head around, like, what data you're collecting. Um, and so you're wanting to do what with it? So you're trying to identify groups of patients, so some kind of unsupervised mm -hmm. clustering or some, or you're predicting something? Yeah, unsupervised. Well, one, we're just trying to get all the data together and some sort of visualization to see, like, what happened to this person, right? Um, and then in the same respects, what happened to these groups of people and identify potentially some triage opportunities. And it's been very interesting because a lot of people sent me links to other stuff. And it's just like, there are literally hundreds of other groups, hundreds, thousands of other people doing either similar things or uh, public health based things and epidemiological things. And it's actually kind of hard to separate the epidemiology stuff from the medical ICU triage. Information. Right. And you're in the triage section. kind right of. Right now I'm working in the triage. I do not do epi, epi modeling and I don't want to throw my hat in that ring because that, that ring is, is fierce right now. And so what would a success outcome be at the end of this project? What would that look like? Like identifying a new feature that they could use to triage patients or what would be a success here? Yeah, I think uh, a severity score that would give some indication if that patient should be discharged or not given the time course of their um, disease and the, the pathology. So the timing of when they came in the positive test, their symptomology, determining whether it would be a good time to, or if it would be a good time to discharge them. And if so, what, when should they be discharged? Cool. Um, and so where are you in that process right now? We Just are gathering the data. Yeah. So we've been working with the hospital IT team very closely to get the data that we want and not much else because as you can guess, there's a lot, you, you get a lot of information from each patient. So, um, and is it real time? Like you get updates on patients like each day, or do you have like a static endpoint? Like April 1st was the last day that you're going to receive data from that, from Indian yeah. patients at all, or. So we have daily updates, daily updates um, oh, nice. from a okay. SQL server. So, uh, it was, you know, fun connecting our studio with SQL and then finding out, you know, on the issues pages that there are like five or six bugs with this and they happen to creep up in ours and finding some interesting workarounds. Um, so, yeah, one day maybe I'll, I'll write that up, but it was very interesting because I thought it was uh, some issue with us connecting to the database and it turned out to be, you know, an ODBC driver, which... I obviously did not know about until a day ago that I needed to figure out how to fix that. What is an ODCB driver? So it's a, it's a database connection. Uh, oh, one of right. the, okay. Right, right, right. If many, many, I found out that there's, you know, 10 different R packages and 10 different ways to connect to a SQL server in R and multiple platforms. And they, uh, each had their own little hiccups here and there. So we've been heavily relying on the DBI package in R, DBPly R, and some of those some of those back ends so that we connect to the server. Right now we are pulling everything and dumping it, but it's nice because those so DB plier, for example, can connect to a database and you can manipulate it like plier and it won't pull everything in until you like ask it to. And so are you doing like the computation inside of the SQL database or are you pulling data out of the SQL database? Like are you applying you must be applying some kind of filter or are you just pulling like all this is like are all the patients in this database all COVID-19 patients or how does it work? For the most part, yeah. So it's not many. It's um, 
the potential number of patients I think we have or that we're studying, and that's not the number of COVID patients, um, would be like 500 in this respect. But that can get to the order of like two to three million rows, depending on the labs. So what we're doing is connecting with the database, filtering it. And what dbplyr does is it actually translates that into some SQL commands, SQL um, procs. And so it sends those along. And until we say like, hey, I want to collect this as an actual data set in memory, it can do those filtering steps and things like that, show you the, show you the results and do some counts until you need to pull it all in, which is great. Nice. Yes, I, I had a lecture that I gave on um, working with large-scale data, and one of them was dealing with SQL databases. And so I personally don't do this in my own research, but I did a lot of research about it when I was preparing for the lecture, and I learned quite a bit that you can actually save a lot of time by performing a lot of the filtering and the subsetting computations within the SQL database itself, and that package, DBI, and the DBI player are fantastic for that, because then you can do, um, you only pull out so many observations or so much information from the SQL database that you can pull locally, um, and then do further analyses like with ggplots and things like that that you might want to explore the data with. But you can save so much time by doing the computation inside the SQL database, which is something I learned. Yeah, no, it's it's been really interesting. Uh, they have great resources. Our studio's got some great stuff out there. And once we got it working, it was working great, uh, just getting it working. out of the Is it still working? You made it sound like that's not working now. Like No, 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 no. It, okay. it, it, it is working. It was some very technical issues on how the data is pulled. And for example, our studio's pro server has workarounds on it and additional drivers that they supplement it with, but uh, the standard packages that we have weren't working nice. with it. But it's, it's really interesting because a lot of the muscle memory, especially data scientists have between like keyboard shortcuts, all that kind of stuff, because I'm on a Mac and then the virtual machine is a Windows machine, some of those keyboard things do not translate the same way, which is which is, a little bit of an issue because I'm just trying to do something and I'm like, like, oh, I meant to put a pipe in there and that was the minimize function and then the screen goes away. So it's been, it's been a little bit trial and error. So let me ask you this. So you're a data scientist working in COVID-19 research. Do you feel like you're kind of driving the analysis and driving, like trying to, um, were you like tasked with a specific question and you're analyzing the data to answer that question or do you feel like you're driving the analysis yourself or how do you feel like you fit yourself in right now? I think two things. So I think the clinicians definitely are driving the analysis, which I think is the right way because I don't know half of the things they're talking about sometimes. So I need a lot of clarification. And then I think the data wrangling and data organization has been kind of this half back and forth between us and the IT team that's building the SQL database. So, you know, I think they, in some respects, they have dumped out certain things that we can definitely wrangle together. But we've asked them, can you give it to us this way? This would be a lot more easier to start. And they said, oh, yeah, that, that's super uh, convenient for us we can do it that way we thought you wanted it this way so it's been a lot of interaction with that team so I would say the questions are still coming from cl clinicians we're just in the phase of getting some visualizations out there but the IT team and us it's, it's been a really nice collaboration so that they can like make the database a lot more amenable to data analysis that's fantastic and so you've mentioned clinicians IT are there other individuals that are kind of like playing a role you mentioned students I think as well earlier in the conversation who all is involved in the project so yeah so biostat students are, are analyzing pulling the data down I was involved 
uh, a lot more than them initially because I was uh, one of the technical leads to make sure this database thing was was working right. But me and myself and a an, uh, health IT uh, person kind of worked out the, the kinks a little bit. And then they have the data. And so they're going to be doing the visualizations, some of the exploratory data analysis kind of going forward. And I'll be, you know, putting my, my flavor in there wherever I can. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. And so how fast do you imagine this project is going to get to like a completion point? Is it like you need two weeks turnaround from here or is it like just you deal with it as like quickly as you can and there's no timeline or? Uh, I would say we'd want to get some deliverables by the end of this week now that we have uh, the data and formatted in the way that we want. Um, I don't know if they're, they're definitely not going to be the finalized um, outputs, but I think one thing we've discussed and I think it's a good idea is to give some plots quickly and give them interactive plots. So we're going to use Plotly and things like that so that people can, you know, change things, move things, do some manipulation on their own. Uh, not, not to, not to offload that, that burden to someone else, but usually many times I've always found anytime I gave someone a plot, they ask like 10 questions about that plot and they're like, who's this person? What is this? Can I take this away? And so we've just found like interactive graphics for us uh, has been pretty good, but everything has to be shared behind this secure firewall, secured space. So they have to go through. So I think we're making HTML reports that people will then queue up on their machines. That's kind of the idea, but I'd say a week to get something that looks probably 50% on what it would look like at the end. And I would say like another week or two after that to get them something or at least some, you know, summary uh, severity scores like the WHO had put out some. So getting those and try to get some very basic analyses by the end of the week. And so this is for Hopkins, Hopkins patients, right? Do you have access or is there like talks or cross talks with other hospitals or other institutions that have similar EHR databases that you could potentially tap into to gain more power for statistical yeah. power? Should we talk? I don't know. I, I assume that's the case, but that's above my pay grade right now. Uh, okay. So I assume that's going to happen. There are, but I don't know um, what consortia right now are really doing that. I know Princeton has an interesting repository that they're putting out there. And yeah, I assume that's, that's the hospital admin discussion people, not me. Got it. Okay. So you're focused on the, the wrangling and the analysis. Awesome. So what, what about yourself? What is like a day where like, um, are you like task oriented? What is like a successful day in COVID? In COVID? I have an inbox zero. I don't know. Oh man. Let's see. A successful day. One that I get to brush my teeth. Mm. <laughs> Shower. There you go. <laughs> I mean, it's really the simple things like, if my kids are only in timeout like two or three times as opposed to like 10 times, that's a, a metric or a marker of a good day. Um, I, I have, I think for me, it's been more of a transitionatory period. Like the first week was the hardest. Maybe the first two weeks were the hardest for me because I was in this weird state in which you're just kind of accepting the reality that I'm, I'm in now. Like I, the kids will be home and I have to accept that this is the way things are going to be. And I have to adapt and the kids have to adapt. And so for the first week, there was no routine. There was no schedule. It was just kind of like, let's just kind of make this work. And my husband and I will um, juggle the kids back and forth and we didn't really have structure or, um, or treat it as if it were like school at home. 
and that was a disaster basically because the kids, our kids, they thrive on routines and they thrive in like settings in which they understand what the rules are and um, they know what's, what's coming next. And so for us, um, it was a matter of lowering the expectations kind of across the board that we are not going to be able to work our normal eight hours a day or whatever it is. And the kids are our priority, like family and health and happiness is the insanity, <laughs> keeping everybody's like mental health and sanity was a big, big priority. So once we kind of got that under control, then you can start to think about work again. And so after I basically dropped the ball on every single project, um, and still am to an extent, then I am I'm slowly starting to dip my toes back in the world of research and um, seeing how things are going. At the same time, I also have a lab of, um, I have people that, I, my trainees, for example, I that I work with. I have um, two postdocs and several PhD students that I'm working with, and so I want to support them. And as I go along in this, you know, things happen and you want to make sure that their mental health and their well-being is prioritized and they have all the resources that they need. And so by the end of the day, the time and the energy that is spent towards making sure my family is okay, making sure my trainees and my collaborators and my colleagues are okay, there's just very little time for anything else. And so I find time is completely relative. It's all mushed together. And um, the news is a very hard place to like watch right now and so I I live in this world where I just feel so fortunate and so thankful um, that I have a job and my family is okay that even with everything that I just mentioned about all the complaints that I have related to and the frustrations about not getting work done it's okay like everybody in the world is working at a different pace right now and um, that's okay. And even Hopkins, for example, has announced a new policy. And I, a lot of universities have announced a policy where they will extend, for example, the tenure track timeline by a year because of COVID-19. And so I feel like many companies, not all sectors of the economy, but many companies and many universities are doing their best to try and accommodate kind of this exceptional situation that, that we are currently facing. And so um, for me, like a good day is essentially one in which uh, we're still alive, we're still healthy, we have food on the table, um, we were able to run outside. Uh, like it's just, it's a very simplistic frame of mind, but that's just kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah, I think there, there's like, I think there is like three to four categories of people right now. There's uh, so people with children in the house, which are going through their own things. Um, people with dogs, because they're like a, a very distinct subset outside. We have a dog, so just w walks have become like a huge refuge. And then uh, everyone else. And I would say uh, if you're in the everyone else category, definitely make some structured time to just get outside. Just, just like stepping outside your door. Um, stay keeping distancing and all that but like literally just stepping outside the door I was just like this is you know it's very it's nice out today so it was just you know oh yeah it's like nice yeah. out like just just enjoying that for like a hot second um, I think is useful so okay so a couple things let's see all right so personal hygiene keep keep that in order um, <laughs> limit the number of timeouts for children hopefully see hopefully that's a that's a successful 
thing. And maybe for yourself, oh God, maybe for yourself, increase the number of timeouts you take. I don't know. Um, so structure, lower expectations and increase structure as much as you can. I think that's a, that's a great idea because, you know, um, even if the structure is this time of day, we're going to take a shower because, you know, you gotta, you gotta get that in. I think the days I don't shower and, and I haven't changed from what I, I slept in. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I it's like four o'clock. I like glance by a mirror and I have a lot of questions about what I'm doing in my life. Uh, so Somebody was just interesting follow-up. Somebody was mentioning to me on Twitter that they are kind of viewing this like a paternity maternity leave mm -hmm. in the sense that like you're now at home with your kids and that's just like your new lifestyle. I think the difference for me is that in, in, on leave, at least when I took maternity leave, there was no expectation to work. I mean, there was mm -hmm. like very, very little expectation to work. Like you were on leave like there is like you are allowed to prioritize your family and your health well right now it's just like work from home and do your best and i'm yeah. like well i'm very torn by that because basically my kids demand a lot of time and energy and then work also demands a lot of time and energy and that leaves very little for myself um in term at the end of the day and so it's not like paternity and maternity leave i yeah. mean i i am doing my best and i am working at a reduced rate but it is very much not like maternity maternity leave. And, and those individuals that are able to still have access to childcare, I mean, that is great for you, but that is not the yeah. case for many people. Well, and the other thing is when you're on maternity leave, you know, you probably have a whole, you know, procession of visitors and things like that at night and help from, you know, in-laws in if, if, and parents and other things like that, which, which you really don't have access to here in a lot of respects, depending on your situation. So. And also another major difference is there, that's a finite amount of time. At least for me, I took 12 weeks. This is, I mean, as we yep. currently know the situation on April 14th, there is no, there is no timeline for this. I mean, we have, guesstimates at best. I mean, epidemiologists are doing everything they can to try and help us understand when things will start to appear more positive. And it seems like they are in many places, but, um, and, and it's never, it's not going to be a consistent, like today is the day that everyone is better. Like it's going to be a state by state response or a city by city response. And so from my perspective, there's no timeline. Um, <laughs> And there's still an expectation yeah. to do some work. And so for me, I, I do not think of this as a, a leave of sorts. Yeah. I've always thought that there should be uh, a service or something like that, that essentially takes your password from your email uh, or something from you takes access away if, if you want that. Right. So I've spoken actually to a couple of mothers about this or and fathers who went on maternity and paternity leave and said, would you subscribe? If they said, you know, we're taking your email away for like a week or a month. Some said like, absolutely. That is fantastic. Some said, no, I still want to be able to check that, see what's going on. But it is a very interesting thing that like, there is an expectation that like stay away from work. Whereas right now it's like, Hey, could you like check out work and then also cook dinner and then like, you know, do you're doing laundry and you're at the house and you have to do all the other things that are going on around you. So it is different. Also for, I don't know about you, but because we're now home, my kids are eating lunch at home with us. And I just, 
it seems like they're eating way more food now than they did before. So I'm having to cook a lot more. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> like, I'm eating more food. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I'm, I'm at lunchtime. I'm like, okay, this is like what you would normally eat for like a meal. And then my, my kids are like, no, more food, more food. And I'm yeah. just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and luckily, uh, you and I at least have some external space. So I know for like students, especially who have a lot of roommates or something like that, the only the only space might be a common space living room. And I would say a lot of uh, sleep researchers definitely say not to work in your bedroom, in your bed, to try to separate that. So I think it's it's the 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 thing of saying work from home is fine in certain places, but I don't know if a lot of people, especially who have, you know, maybe large houses, large spaces or office spaces really understand that finding space to do work is not always so simple. Um, especially right in, in, in a lot of respects when I was a student, I would go to coffee shops all the time and now that's, that's not available. So I would just be say, say to be cognizant of, uh, if you're scheduling meetings, say like, do you have like a time to be away from sound and noise and that kind of stuff? So I'm just saying I found a lot of students like in their living rooms with other people in there, like multiple people on calls. So I don't, I don't know if we've acknowledged yet that like actually having a space to work from home isn't, isn't available to like everyone. That's a great question. I, so I've been, at least for the trainees that I work with, my collaborators that I work with, I've been reaching out to make sure that they have the resources that they need to be successful, particularly for the trainees. And so I've been able to identify a few situations that um, were not ideal and try to solve some of those problems. So that's been really nice. But yeah. not everybody's like that. Not everybody's yeah. going to reach out. They're just going to assume everybody has a monitor at home or everybody has the ability to have really good Wi-Fi. I mean, they might not have really good Wi-Fi. And if you're expected to be on a zoom call, you know, a couple times a week, that's going to be a big hindrance. Or if you're expected to be working on a cluster in which you're getting kicked off and on um, constantly, like that's a really big problem. And so even the small things that uh, faculty members can do to make the, experience of uh, working at home better for their students and trainees is going to go a really, really long way. So I I think I want to like end with, you know, we, we definitely uh, are adding to the, to the discussion of COVID and I feel like everything, everything it's, it's infused everywhere. Uh, You know, rightfully so it's affecting every aspect of our lives for the most part. But so do you want to solidify some, recommendations and then maybe some things to keep your mind off COVID. Hmm. So I have been into this new show by John Krasinski uh, called Some Good News. Have Mm -hmm. have you heard about this? Yep, I've seen it. Oh, so that has like brought like so much joy to my life. So it's a YouTube channel by one of the the individuals who uh, was in the office Mm -hmm. and he has started his own, like basically a news network at home. And the, like the background is a drawing that his kids drew, drew um, the SGN, some good news. And he basically has put together like clips of good news because there's a lot of bad, uh, depressing news out there. And um, they had an episode where they had basically the entire Hamilton cast sing to a little girl because she wanted to go see Hamilton and like, she wasn't going to be able to see Hamilton. And his, his wife is Emily Blunt, who uh, was in um, return of Mary Poppins with, with Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yeah. And then the, the most recent episode, it was, he was interviewing some 
nurses and nurse practitioners or maybe doctors from Beth Israel in Boston, just basically saying, thank you so much for how hard you're working. And I mean, these individuals, they could not, they can't go home to see their families because um, they're basically quarantined from their families right now. And so he, he brought one of the, the duck boats. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with the duck boats yep. from Boston. And he picked them up uh, or had somebody pick them up and then drew them to Fenway Park and let them pitch a bull. And then they had the entire Boston Red Sox team thank them. I, I don't know. It just, it is like yeah. being able to focus on something positive has brought a lot of happiness to me. And so my recommendation is keep up to date with the news. I mean, generally, but try not to focus on it. Try not to panic and try to focus on positive things that are happening. And the news doesn't talk about like, um, or doesn't applaud every person who leaves the hospital after they've been intubated, for example. And I, I think we should be thinking about the positive aspects as like hard as it is. It's for me, it's been a real game changer in my ability to kind of like function as a human yeah. being and want to get up in the morning. <laughs> I like that because yours is focus on positive things. Mine is like, here are ways to completely avoid what's going on in the world. <laughs> deny, deny, deny. Yeah. So I have like, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. So I have a nice backlog of, of podcasts from like a couple months ago. Right? So I've been trying to like work my way backwards and like through them because it's like, oh, what was happening six months ago? It's like, oh. That's, that just seems like so adorable that that was an issue. Um, and, but I just get, I call, I'm called up and it's definitely no, I know there's going to be no discussion of, of COVID. I have seen SGN. Um, and I've been reading more because, you know, <laughs> there's books. I mean, even YouTube, right. has like information about COVID in there, no matter what you're watching. Um, but books, books t tend to be pretty static in, in a positive way. No COVID uh, in books yet. <laughs> yep. There's, I haven't, my, my books app has not started, started flashing any COVID related things. So, um, I would oh, say books yeah. definitely can take you out. And, um, I, weirdly I've been thinking a lot about the movie, uh, I am legend with, um, Will Smith, which was about like a book right. called Mega Man and thing like that, post-apocalyptic. And in the in the movie, he watched, he was watching, he rec had recordings of like TV from months before that. I mean, this was during when that outbreak was going on in the movie, but he listened to a lot of music, so a lot of Bob Marley, which I'm a huge fan of, and then things, and then just watching like, you know, regular TV and kind of keeping a routine. Uh, I will say in the movie, those TV segments were about the pandemic. So I would just say do the same thing, but like maybe take it back in time if you can with some uh, with some old podcasts and stuff like that. If you want to get back in your old routine. And to all of those who have been severely or even um, not severely, even just minutely affected by COVID-19, don't hesitate to reach for help. Don't hesitate to reach out if it's mental health, if it's physical health, if it's financial help. Um, there are many people out there who are doing everything in their power to try and restore normalcy and or some semblance of normalcy. And um, if you ever have any questions or concerns, reach out to John or I on Twitter. I mean, we, we are very invested in helping this public um, pandemic come to an end, this public crisis. And I just, I think it's really important for those who feel helpless and for those who feel like they have no place to turn that, they know that there is some place to turn and help can be found. It's just a matter of finding the right resources. Yeah. 
So, and then if it's safe and, uh, you know, sometimes adding something into an order, I know we had a, a graduate student appreciation week the other week. So uh, one of my students who's writing his thesis, so um, he and I live very, uh, close to each other and, you know, we chat on Slack. And so he was saying that he was going to go to the beer store later that day. And so I said, I was actually heading there. So I, I grabbed a six pack for him and, you know, put it at his doorstep, told him to wipe it all off. And we, you know, said hi, but he's, you know, don't, don't be afraid to ask. Uh, I know, you know, we've had discussions about Amazon gift cards, things like that. So if you need help, just definitely, you know, can't, it can't hurt to ask for a lot of these things. So, so true. So true. All right. All right. Maybe we'll leave it there on a positive note. <laughs> Sounds good. Hopefully some good news from us sometimes. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe. All right. Thanks.